Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 37th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. We would like to take this time to thank our sponsor, Galavan, Galavan, and Omelia, creators of the Digital War Room platform for e-discovery. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is a state court judge's perspective on e-discovery. We're delighted to welcome as our guest our longtime friend, Fairfax County Circuit Court Judge John M. Tran. Judge Tran is the 63rd and most recent judge to sit on the Fairfax Circuit Court in the 19th Judicial Circuit of Virginia since 1742. Before joining the court, he was a partner in the boutique litigation law firm of Demiro Ginsburg, PC, in Old Town and Alexandria, where he had substantial experience dealing with matters involving e-discovery, both in federal as well as state court. He is a graduate of the George Washington University and George Washington University Law School, which is appropriate given that George Washington himself once served as a justice, as they were called, on the Fairfax Court. Thanks so much for joining us today, Judge Tran. Thank you, John and Sharon, for inviting me to join you in today's discussion and allowing my inner geek to speak out. <laughs> we know how you like that, Judge Tran, since we served with you when you were just John. But for this podcast, you are now Judge Tran. But we had a long time with you on the law practice uh, management section here at the Fairfax Bar Association. And we also recently had the pleasure of being on the faculty with you at a Fairfax Bar Association CLE, where you joined two of your fellow judges, Chief Judge Dennis Smith and Judge Jane Roush, in a judges panel on e which was a big hit. One of the things that Judge Smith entertained the audience with was his description of digital natives and digital immigrants. Can you explain what he meant and which category you'd put yourself in? Well, the terms digital immigrant and digital natives are attributable to Mark Prinsky. He's an American author who writes on matters of learning and education. And when he wrote it, I think he was referring mostly to the generational divide, people born into the tech world and people not. You know, today we talk about digital immigrants as those who have only recently in their lives become acquainted with today's technology. And we find that when they deal with matters touching on the digital world, they often confront issues that they may not have themselves personally experienced. And especially for the judges who are digital immigrants, even if they understand the logic of what's being argued, for them the terms remain somewhat abstract with no connection to any real-life experience. And this is similar to the experience of what we know as non-native language speakers trying to learn a particular language. Similar to other immigrants, digital immigrants may successfully adapt to their surroundings, but some do keep what I call their accent or foot in the past, as I think Mr. Prensky mentioned. You know, one of my former law partners is a brilliant lawyer in all respects, didn't even have a computer in his office. I guess we'd call him a digital alien. (laughs) (laughs) And we know which partner you mean. (laughs) He would have his uh, legal assistant print out his emails, and then he would dictate a response to email messages when he wanted to answer them. And that's how he used email to communicate. And when he worked on cases where people argued about places where you could find email, should search for email, 
I suspect that he understood those terms in the abstract, but never having gone to retrieve archive emails himself, I didn't think he really understood all the places where email could be found. Compared to him, we refer to digital natives as someone either being born or becoming fully assimilated into the worlds of computers and technology. And I, I liken them to the characters in the Matrix movie series. They not only uh, understand the technology, but when arguments are made with respect to technology, they can actually visualize the information flow. Someone like you, Sharon, uh, and you, John. I guess, <laughs> Sharon, I was thinking about this talk. I thought, oh, you're like the Oracle, and John's like Sarah, the bodyguard that won't allow the Oracle to stay in one place too long. Um, I wouldn't look good in a muumuu anyway. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I like being an Oracle. Thank you, Judge Strand. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. The difference, of course, is often, but not always, the direct product uh, generation and age differences. And due to the uh, experience requirement, both professionally and personally for circuit court judges, many of the judges are not born into what I would call the digital generation. So some of these arguments are somewhat abstract to many of my colleagues. I'm on the border between what I would call the native and immigrant. I was not born into the digital world. I become comfortable with the digital world only because of my great interest in gadgets. So in other words, I think I, I know just enough to be dangerous. <laughs> That's the inner geek. That's the inner geek in me. But I thought it was interesting that on the panel, we had the longest serving judge on the circuit court, Judge Roush, and we had our chief judge, who's an enthusiastic proponent of improving technology in the court. And I found that at the end of the day, we all came to the same place when we talked about e-discovery. So we took old and tried concepts and applied them to today's demand and reach the same point. But Chief Judge Smith, who, again, is a, a great component of technology in the courthouse, uh, kind of showed his digital immigrant status when, you remember, he excitedly informed the audience about how to get rid of their apps on the yes, new yes. iOS 7. Yep, and and yep. I was thinking to myself, um, gosh, most teenagers who have those devices know how to do that. <laughs> well, but 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 it's also been around since I think iOS three. But but that's okay. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, that probably brings us to the next thing we wanted to talk about. John, you want to introduce that? Yeah, all the judges they made a point of saying, "Educate us." Can you kind of talk a little bit about that, Judge Tran? And how much e-discovery education do state court judges get, and where do they get it from? Well, the need to educate a decision maker applies not only to e-discovery, but to also to any point that a litigant is asking a judge to adopt. Too often, litigants and their lawyers, being fully familiar with their case, comes before the court filled with arguments that are based on acronyms and phrases that are common to them, but they may be uncommon and foreign to the court. And as the panel showed that even the most interested judge may not be up on the latest technology. And so being educated is, is a necessary part of, of any argument, especially e-discovery. And being specific, I think we learned was necessary as well. There's a big difference between somebody who stands up and says to us, it's unduly burdensome to produce certain documents a certain way. Uh, you know, the, the term unduly burdensome has that same sleep inducing effect as, as a heavy meal. <laughs> um, and you compare the lawyer who makes that argument to the one who says, Judge, we have 59 desktop computers. They're backed up every day on 30 rotating tapes. And it would take 
one person a full seven days simply to assemble the data in one backup tape. You know, somebody who says that compared to someone who says unduly burdensome is going to do much better. In terms of the education that we get, most state judges and and I think federal judges as well, we get our education on the job. We get our on-the-job training. And the easiest way to become familiar with the terms is to be engaged in a hotly contested discovery case. And because some of these issues are repetitive, we can quickly become subject matter experts in areas that we may never have studied before taking the bench. But after hearing argument from prepared counsel on these issues, we do get quickly up to speed. Well, you know, when we were talking, I know that all three of you made very strong points about narrowing discovery requests and respecting privacy rights. Are you seeing, I know the federal judges all say they see too much phishing and a desire to get the whole world possible evidence, and they're just not going to permit that. Uh, what has been your experience? Well, that's true, especially when you're talking about a case involving the discovery in the days of paper and limited information. There wasn't any harm in getting the entire file pertaining to a particular subject matter. But nowadays, because the information is so massive out there, the form discovery is no longer helpful. And the advocate who has a focus search is going to do much better than someone who just simply says, I need any and all documents pertaining to that particular subject. And it's often a sign to us how prepared an attorney is in terms of how focused the search terms are that they're asking us to help them enforce. You know, Judge Tran, you mentioned a little bit ago about the, the word overly burdensome. When do you buy that that argument? And does proportionality come into any of that, that your decision about buying it? It does. And it's actually in the rules. It's in Rule 4, colon 1B and 4, colon 1C of the Virginia Supreme Court rules. And with respect to e-discovery, it's actually in 4 colon 1B7, which is found in the federal rules as well, where the rules expressly say that electronic stored information, or ESI, doesn't have to be produced once the party identifies the source as not being reasonably accessible because of undue burden or cost. But remember those terms, and once again, undue burden or cost, those are conclusions. A party who is as asking us to apply proportionality, need to be specific. For example, in a case in which a contract is involved and the contract terms are clear and the only issue is one of performance, that's the type of case where if someone says the other side is trying to look at their electronic data to uncover prior drafts of that argument, uh, that argument is not going to be persuasive if the uh, opponent of that discovery brings our attention to the fact that at issue in the case is one of performance and not contract formation. In addition, some judges have come from the world, as I came from, the federal system where Rule 16 uh, conferences and Rule 26 initial disclosures were intended to work together in an effort to narrow the issues and make discovery cost-effective. And uh, there have been many times in my prior federal practice where I've actually gotten together with opposing counsel and looked at how much money was at stake 
and come to an agreement that production should be by paper until and unless a party showed that the uh, paper was not sufficient for the needs of the case. And I think that most judges and lawyers who are interested in the issue of e-discovery are following the Sedona conference. And I'm aware, for example, that in early 2013, the Sedona conference updated its commentary on proportionality. And as they went through the, all the outlines of what they viewed as necessary framework to decide what is exactly needed, those are the same factors that state judges have applied in, in cases in the past to determine whether or not certain discovery production was compliant with the rules and the needs of the case. You know, there was a time when we used to see attorneys argue that search terms and methodologies were work product, uh, and at the federal level, that died a pretty quick death since the process of search, now by many court opinions, has to be tested, defensible, and transparent. But it seems to us that it kind of has died a slower death in state courts. Uh, I know we had one case, although it was some years ago, where a magistrate judge who clearly didn't know electronic discovery did find that it was work product, which just horrified us at the time. I don't think we'd ever see that in federal court anymore. But do you think that argument has now been laid to rest in state courts? No, I don't think so. And I'm not so sure... Sharon, that it's been laid to rest in federal court. I think that in some federal courts, especially in the Northern District of California, where the Apple case is going on, and the other cases have relied on that, the case of Romero versus Allstate coming out from the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. And you have to remember that the whole doctrine, the work product doctrine, actually came from the United States Supreme Court decision of Hickman versus Taylor, which is a 1947 case. We haven't seen the highest appellate courts in the federal system and certainly no state court that I'm aware of address this issue as to when search terms can constitute work product. And I think because where the cases made search terms necessary, the burdens of the discovery production was such that the need for search terms was apparent in those cases. And I think that the court could quickly see that the easiest way to get responsive documents from a mass of data was to have the parties work together in a cooperative fashion. And I see that there's a trend in treating discovery as a cooperative process as opposed to the adversarial process that we expect in litigation. And if it's cooperative and the terms are shared, they can't possibly be work product. But I could see a situation where a party could say that they use search terms consistent with the discovery requests that are made to show that documents responsive to those requests were produced. But counsel working along with the client can come up with their own search terms to find other documents that may more directly address the response. The only danger in that, of course, is that if you come up with a document through your own search terms that wasn't produced from agreed-upon search terms, you might be finding yourself trying to defend claims of hiding evidence. And so I think that this, as well as many of the e-discovery issues that are coming up in the past decade, are still very, very new 
And you know how it takes a while for the legal system often to catch up to new inventions, <laughs> like forever. Yep, yep. <laughs> but we'll we'll have to we'll have to have a, a beer, Judge Tran, one of these days, and and discuss the your sense of that and ours, which probably are not entirely in agreement. But that's what bars are for. <laughs> that's right, exactly. <laughs> the other kind of bar. Uh, well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break with a few words from the Legal Talk Network and our sponsor, Galavan, Galavan, and Amelia, creators of the digital war room platform for e-discovery. Don't be caught unprepared for e-discovery. Digital War Room e-discovery software allows you to search, review, mark, and produce responsive email and documents. Powerful enough for your biggest cases, but easy enough for first-time e-discovery attorneys. Geeks need not apply. Digital War Room has a solution for every client, every case, and every budget. Visit www.digitalwarroom.com for a free trial and see how easy e-discovery can be. Make your next case your best case with Digital War Room. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today we're talking about a state court judge's perspective on e-discovery with Fairfax Circuit Court Judge John M. Tran. Judge Tran, you have only recently become a judge. So how would you explain the difference in perspective from a judge's point of view and a litigator's point of view with respect to e-discovery? It's easy. It's much more enjoyable being here than there. (laughs) Um, That was too easy a question. (laughs) It is far less painful to hear and resolve discovery disputes than to be in the thick of such disputes. I can still recognize the scar of battles when counsel appear before me. Uh, But the fact is, I just don't feel the pain as keenly when dealing with a difficult and rude opposing counsel or uncooperative or unappreciative clients. By the time the parties appear before me, they're typically on their best behavior, right? Trying to convince me that they're being overly accommodating at times while opposing counsel is either stonewalling or engaging in unconscionable scorcher litigation. That's what I hear, but (laughs) I remember what it was like being in the trenches. And, And I think that the first hurdle that lawyers have to overcome come from the clients themselves because litigation has become very, very expensive. And especially when you're talking about e-discovery and you're getting messages from the uh, court that parties ought to engage in litigation hold practices and that the failure to keep all available electronic data could lead to a finance spoilation. And some clients don't understand this, especially when claims are brought that they think are frivolous. <laughs> and I think that the initial response is, why should we incur any more money than is necessary when the claim's frivolous and won't even get past the first round of litigation and won't even get to discovery? And so I, I understand how hard it is for attorneys to get their clients to cooperate with them because full and complete e-discovery requires cooperation between counsel and client, which means time, and time means money. And then I believe that this concept of cooperative discovery and transparency in discovery, it has been a, a recent development that was necessitated by the difficulties in getting e-discovery done absent the cooperation between the parties and counsel. 
as we just discussed. That's probably one of the reasons why agreed-upon search terms is a, is a preferred method mm-hmm. of dealing with e-discovery than the traditional kind of hide-and-seek form of discovery. We won't produce what you don't specifically ask for. And I think you see the rules, uh, the federal rules especially, have changed to reflect this new era of cooperative discovery with the initial disclosures that are even required. So more and more, I think we're returning to the days of of meeting the purpose of discovery, which is discovery is meant to get all the facts out on the table and how the parties would like a fact finder or decision maker to interpret those facts is part of the adversarial system. And the whole thought, but before you get there, the facts as they exist ought to be made known. And that's the whole purpose of discovery. And it's much easier to sit on the bench and require that to be done than to be in the trenches and making sure that you're getting that information. And then if you're not getting the information, finding a way to have a debate, a civil debate, (laughs) so that you can either resolve those differences or bring those differences to the court. As most attorneys engaged in discovery disputes understand, the court never wants to hear them because they seem petty by the time they get to the court. And most of our colleagues understand that there's some issues that really have to be fleshed out and decided by a third person, but many discovery issues don't. Mm. And so we're wanting to see some at least cooperative uh, effort in going through certain processes to eliminate the issues that don't really have to be debated. But it's much easier doing it from up here (laughs) than down there. (laughs) Well, During the CLE, you refer to rolling productions and e-discovery as being just a part of life these days. Can you tell our listeners what that means and and why they're, they're so commonplace now? Well, the rules of discovery have a very short window for responses. You know, Virginia has requires responses in 21 days. The federal rules require them in, in 30 days. And I might be wrong off those days. <laughs> but in the past, when information could be found in a central place, for most cases, and, and today I think for most cases, that's still the case, you could gather all your information and produce it. But nowadays, because especially with electronic information, it can be found in so many different places and held by so many different custodians that if you waited until you gathered everything, as many parties do, it's not a surprise that they go past the due date. It's almost impossible in some cases to finish the collection and assembly of information within the 30-day time period without even getting to the point of how much time it's going to take to review the data to ensure that privileged communication and trade secrets aren't inadvertently disclosed. And so it is harder these days for any litigant in a complex case to be able to confidently say that all the information has been collected and has been produced. And it's dangerous because if you read all those cases where sanctions were imposed, they were often imposed because a party made a misrepresentation of what it claimed was a complete production. And it was later discovered that 
the production wasn't as complete and that important documents were missing from the production and then later discovered. It is far safer, as I've seen it, when parties are dealing with a large amount of data to continually produce the information as it becomes available. That is also consistent with the rules that require seasonable supplementation of the information that you have to produce in response to discovery requests in any event. Lastly, it is very hard, and it's much harder, to get any sort of sanctions in discovery dispute. If you're doing rolling production, if you're giving people information as often as they come, and it also helps eliminate requests for information that is made in a vacuum. I recently had a matter where a council conceded that when the motion to compel was filed, they hadn't gotten any information. But as the information came in, they're insistent that any and all documents produced on a particular subject matter be produced that need became less apparent because as the information came in, they started to gather enough to be comfortable that they knew enough about that particular fact and issue that they may not need any more. But you don't know that unless you get at least the first Mm -hmm. initial set. So for complex cases, rolling production would seem to be the best way to address discovery. Now, are you seeing a lot of predictive coding? And of course, that has so many other names. But are you seeing that a lot being used in state courts? And no matter what your answer is, why do you think yes or why do you think no? (laughs) I don't see a lot of it in state court. I know that Judge Shamlin in Loudoun County caused the ED community to take notice when in April 2012, he issued an order allowing for predictive coding uh, in a case out in Loudoun. I don't know what's gone on with that case since that. But the reason why you don't see much of that, I believe, in state court is that the cases that traditionally are document-intensive are cases involving claims that appear more in federal court than state court. And those are patent litigation cases, cases involving class action lawsuits. You know, in Virginia, we don't have a class action statute. (laughs) Labor and employment, federal labor and employment claims seem to generate a lot of the e-discovery discussions. Super Lake was a federal employment claim. So the need for predictive coding, of course, only comes up when you're dealing with a case in which a massive amount of documents could contain responsive documents if you were to define the request in their general terms. And so in order to get a usable set, predictive coding becomes necessary. And and I'm surprised that the idea of predictive coding would ever be controversial because ever since lawyers learned how to do electronic research through Westlaw or Lexis, right, we've used predictive coding. And especially the young lawyers, I think that's the only way they know how to do research. And everybody feels pretty comfortable that you can pull up the cases that are necessary to make legal arguments by predictive coding, why couldn't you do that in order to collect documents and facts? Well, Judge Smith, who has a a way with colorful language, referred to the goose versus gander rule during the the CLE. Can you explain what he meant? Well, 
you know, it's the idiom of what's good for the goose is good for the gander. <laughs> it's a reminder of how the, the court's perspective is often one of balance. I've often said that lawyers who come before the court often have to serve several masters. They have to represent a client. They have to consider the firm, and they consider their uh, duties as officer of the court. The court only has one master. It's the rule of law. <laughs> and we try to apply the law in an impartial manner. And sometimes the best evidence of impartiality is to ensure that any burden is applied equally to both of the parties that appear before us. So, you know, the gander is the male version of a goose, and goose is, includes the female version. So in the old days, that used to apply to marriages. Like John and Sharon, you know, what's good for <laughs> one is supposed to be good for the other. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you, Judge Trey and I have been citing that rule is, to it, my husband for many is, years. Is, is a cor- to, is, to no avail. Is a corollary to that be <clears throat> be careful what you ask for. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I think with e-discovery, it sometimes doesn't work. And many times, when you're talking about the e-discovery, one party is often carrying a heavier burden than the other, and that's usually the corporate party because corporations and businesses have these processes where they store information. And and individuals often have their e-stored information or electronic information in these commercial vendors who don't have the same habits of backing up data and certainly not for their private consumers. So in many instances, when you're talking about imposing e-burden discovery, one party is going to more likely bear higher burden than the other. But where that term, what's good for the goose is good for the gander, has come up in the issue of litigation hold, which I think is one of the more hot topics for e-discovery, where I think that Judge Scheinland's latest decision in the pension case involving the University of Montreal, where she sanctioned the plaintiffs for failing to what we used to think that corporate defendants always had to do, and we know that they have to do it now. Now the plaintiffs are going to have to engage in early litigation hold and careful collection and assembling of information. And I think that's come back from plaintiffs saying corporations are not preserving and retrieving materials from their backup data. The court is never one that likes imbalances. No, and, and you know, you're really right. It is true that the plaintiffs, feeling themselves aggrieved, frequently ignore the fact that they too have duties in the litigation. So I appreciate the point of view of the court. This has really been an outstanding podcast. I thank you very much, Judge Tran, for taking some time after stepping off the bench today to record this with us. It's really been uh, very illuminating. I love all the rock star federal judges, but I think sometimes the state judges get overlooked and there are e-discovery issues and state courts too so thanks again for taking the time to be with us today and thank you for bearing with me to this evening as well <laughs> have a good night well that does it for this edition of digital detectives and remember you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at legaltalknetwork.com or on itunes and you can find out more about sensei's digital forensics technology and security services at www.senseient.com we'll see you next time on digital detectives 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.